Hi, I'm Ed Rotberg, designer of Atari's Battlezone, Stunrunner, Steel Talons, and you're listening to Ted Dab the Ted Dab Dab Dab. Yeah, let's try that again. Hi, I'm Ed Rotberg, designer of Atari's Battlezone, Stunrunner, and Steel Talons. And you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as ever with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And the author of Missile Commander, A Journey to the Top of an Arcade Classic, Tony Temple. Hello. For this episode, we continue our Atari streak by speaking with Battlezone programmer Ed Rotberg. Following Toya's Law, named after Tempest and Missile Command designer Dave Toya, which states that every coder's first game will be a relative failure, Ed's first game for Atari, Baseball, didn't exactly score a home run even though it included, at least during the development period, probably the very first example of speech in the coin-op video game. However, his second title, Battlezone, with its distinctive green wireframe vector graphics, first-person perspective, and unique cabinet design, is rightly regarded as one of Atari's finest releases of the Golden Age. You'll also learn about Battlezone variants, such as the well-documented but still fascinating development of the Bradley Trainer, which was a version of Battlezone adapted for military training purposes and a unique stereoscopic battle zone that was ultimately to remain in the lab. In time, Ed would leave Atari to set up Vidya, an independent developer which was eventually rechristened Sente when former Atari founder Nolan Bushnell took the initiative and acquired the company in exchange for a lot of pizza. Ed would return to Atari in 1986 to work with Mike Kelly on Blasteroids, a feature-packed update of Ed Log's Asteroids, and the striking Stun Runner, a potential influence on Mario Kart, our words, not Ed's and most certainly the Wipeout series of games by Psygnosis for Sony. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear and appreciate an ad-free podcast, you can support us at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash TDE podcast. And you can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Ed Rotberg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Jumping right in, can we, can we safely assume, Ed, that your initial tenure with Atari was built on the foundation of previous computing experience. Yeah, that's pretty safe to say. Um, I start uh, my first job out of college. I was working for Texas Instruments huh. in Austin, Texas. Uh, I worked on the uh, operating system for the Advanced Scientific Computer, which was a highly parallel uh, computer. Uh, although I did not work on the uh, the main processor, working on the operating system was a peripheral processing unit. A very interesting architecture. What was your first computer, Ed? I, I, the IBM 1401. Um, our uh, three high schools that were sister schools, Niles 
East Niles North and Niles West had a, uh, a computer over, it was housed at Niles West, but we were all linked at that time to the computer. It was an IBM 1401, and really only a few students were allowed to put their hands on the computer itself. Mm. Um, it was pretty cool. Um, Autocoder, my first uh, taste of uh, machine language. So, uh, yeah, that was a great experience. So what year was this, Ed, may I ask? That would be like 1968, 69. Ah, okay. Good vintage. Um, and were you we, we an avid programmer? And were you writing games or just, just kind of programs at that point? Um, yes and yes. Um, I was an avid programmer. You know, started my uh, last year in high school uh, with a programming course there, um, which was the first programming course, first time they offered it. And uh, then in college, I started out as a, uh, in the sciences, I, you know, was planning on going into biochemistry. Hmm. So I, I took a lot of, I took, uh, uh, I placed out of um, freshman chemistry and I, I jumped right into the uh, sophomore level chemistry that all of the pre-med students were taking. So I had a lot of stiff competition grade-wise in, in that class. And at the same time, I was taking an algal programming class, uh, and this was at Northwestern University. And I, it, the algal class was like just no problem for me, you know, at all. And it was a ton of fun, and I was, you know, kind of setting the curve in the class. So I made the decision um, that I would uh, you know, change my major and, uh, you know, get into computer engineering. Okay. Um, Ed, talking to your contemporaries from Atari, we see a common thread in that most of them turn their backs on, you know, uh, traditional and arguably more secure careers with the likes of NASA, National Semiconductor, Hewlett Packard, etc. Um, you know, to go on and make these newfangled video games. Was it was it the leap of faith that some make out, Ed, or are these accounts perhaps, and in the nicest possible way, somewhat fanciful and revisionist? I don't think so. You have to remember at that time, um, it was just new. And really, um, the games that we got, the games that we saw were all uh, in the arcade or they were arcade games located in bars. Mm. Um, my first exposures to video games was seeing Pong in a bar uh, on Rush Street in Chicago. Right. Okay. Um, and I was blown away by that. I was just, you know, that was fabulous. And and a short time later, uh, I saw Tank 8 uh, at the Playboy Club in Chicago. Oh, right, cool. Um, where I used to go just for drinks after after I had... Uh, just for the articles, uh, <laughs> of course. No, actually, actually, it was... Uh, I had a buddy that I had tickets to the uh, Chicago Symphony Orchestra with, and he was a member. So right. we just used to jot over there because it was, you know, pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and go for, for drinks. Um, I really, you know, love classical music. Is I, I really like having access to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. It was pretty special. It was a fabulous, fabulous orchestra. Yeah. So did you did you follow a similar path then to your contemporaries to um, to get into Atari? What's what's the story there? Who who interviewed you? Who did you speak to? You know, how how was that connection made? Um, well, the whole thing started. A, um, a friend of mine at 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 where I was working at the time which was GD Serial Pharmaceuticals. Uh, I, was in, I was interfacing um, basically uh, a micro, or lab equipment to, uh, to microcomputers for uh, doing real-time data collecting, which actually is, turns out to be just dead on the kind of thing you wanted to be doing back then uh, before getting into arcade game programming because that was all real-time processing effect. Right, right. Um, so uh, a friend of mine showed me an ad in, uh, I think it was InfoWeek, one of the industry rags at that time. And um, 
it was, you know, for a programmer for Atari. And, you know, I had, I had already seen these games and I said, wow, you know, I sent my resume in. And then a while later, I got a call from Steve Calfee. Right. Okay. Sure. Yeah. He interviewed me over the phone. Mm -hmm. And I guess I passed muster because the next thing I know, I got an invitation to do a face-to-face -face interview with him. He was flying into Chicago and staying at the hotel at the airport. <laughs> so uh, I, I, vi I vividly remember, uh, you know, putting on a suit, tie, <laughs> getting dressed up, going to the interview, knocking on his hotel room door. He opens the door and, you know, he's he's wearing a polo shirt and blue jeans. I thought, I, I thought you were going to say dressing gown then for a second. <laughs> no, no. He's wearing a polo shirt and blue jeans. Yeah. And so the first thing I did was take off my coat and tie. I think that's what got me the job more than anything else. Okay. And how 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 did um you know the working environment at Atari when you started? How did that how did that stack up against the, you know, from where you come from? What surely it was a stark difference, I would imagine. Uh, completely different. More um, of a skunk works. Not not so much more of a skunk works, but more of uh you know, just people expressing their own ideas. Right. And, you know, instead of everybody, you know, in the room working on, you know, a bigger hole of one giant task, you know, it, it boiled over into everyday interactions and everything like that. I, I um, had moved out to California for this job with uh, my fiance at the time. Uh, yeah. we, we hadn't gotten married. And about uh, three or four months into the, no, it was about six months into working there, I flew back. Uh, we had our wedding in Chicago. Um, and I'll never forget this. I came back and, you know, we were like in a large cube farm. Most of us were in a, a cube farm at the time for our cubicles for the office. And I came back and my, my office was not in the same cubicle. Everything else was the same, but it had moved over one cubicle. Right. And when I asked every, you know, anybody about it, they would flat out deny it. They would, <laughs> no one would admit that my cubicle was in the in the wrong. It was years later when Owen Rubin screwed up and said that time we moved your cubicle, and I went. You know, <laughs> but that was like years. That was the kind of thing that happened. You know, strange things. You know, they would uh, anybody could could uh, make an announcement over the PA from their you know telephone. So you'd get strange things like you know. Um, uh, would Jockstrap please come to reception? No, you know, like. Um, uh, you know, uh, things from like the prisoner, you know, you'd get like strange, strange messages, like from the prisoner television show or, or some other current thing going on. It was number six. Come on in. Your time is up. <laughs> Do you know who number one is? Ed? You, you are number six. That kind of thing, you know, would go on all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, we would play games together and uh, it was an incredible group, the best group of talent, creative and technical wise that I've ever worked with in my life. And it was just fun Aww. being around everybody. Yeah, we hear we hear this. I don't think anybody's put it so evocatively as yourself, but we we do hear this. But it was it was quite the um, everybody got a chance to play everybody's game and 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 test and and obviously that was a constructive thing to do. So that open creative atmosphere was um was also productive. Yeah, but it boiled out outside of the, the work environment. We you know we we worked hard together, but we'd also go out and party together and play together. You know, whether yeah. it was sports yeah. or going to a movie together or it was it was there was a very family like atmosphere among the engineering. Uh, well, and all the technical staff, really. Did you hang out? Did you hang out with Nolan then, Ed? Um, Ed we, we always focus there, on that, I know. Well, not at that time. I got there right about the time Nolan was leaving. Right. Yeah. And, okay. and I met him. But, 
you know, it was just, hi, this is Nolan, you know. And uh, it was later after I had left with Roger Hector and, and Howard Delman, who is now Wendy Smith, mm. but um, at the time to form Vidya, which Nolan eventually acquired a, a year or two later. So you joined Atari as games programmer and you were put to work on Atari baseball. Right. And Atari seemed to have a penchant for sports simulations at this time. And we see common hardware used for Atari football, Atari soccer, and indeed, obviously, Atari baseball. Can you give us a brief pricey of what, what it was like to hit the ground running at Atari and work on this work on this title specifically? Well, yeah, it was um, it was kind of flabbergasting that, you know, I got there and, you know, they showed me around, showed me all the games going on. And right then, uh, Atari football that Ed Log did mm. was, you know, really doing quite well in the arcades. And they said, we want to do like a conversion pack uh, for baseball. Of course, it was a conversion. Yes. Right. And we want to do one for soccer. And Dave Toyer got soccer yeah. and I got baseball. And we both kind of uh, f- fell into Toyer's Law. I don't know if, you, if you've heard law. about Toyer's Law. We haven't heard of Toyer's Law, but we actually, we Dave, we have. Well, Dave's a common your thread. First game, your first game's never a success. Right. It's not, right. Well, Dave Dave is a common thread through throughout the podcast. We have we've we want to talk to him, but I think we've talked more about him with everybody else. And he's almost like more of a ghost-like figure. Well, Many of us want to be Dave Toyer. Yeah, Dave Dave was great. Uh, he was just part of the family. Um, but anyhow, so I was working on baseball, and they gave me um, 2K of, of, of programming space and three months to get it out. Although it's interesting, that was the first game, um, to my knowledge, that you know we ever put voice into, although that feature did not make it out uh yes well you preempted my next question which was that was something that happened in development and you uh, baseball was probably arguably the very first video game with or very first coin-op game with speech but it didn't make it into production and obviously nerds like us always have an eye on firsts um you know, especially if it's a matter of contention. So talk to us about that, Ed. Well, Dan Pliskin had been working on a uh, pulse code modulation uh, uh, system for, you know, doing speech, doing uh, voice or recorded output, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, it took a, a, quite a bit of ROM for, I mean, things were expensive in those days. Read-only memory was not as cheap as it is now uh, by a long shot. And, um, and so we couldn't put a lot of voice in it. It said like, you know, four things, ball, strike, safe, and you're out. Um, and that was it. <laughs> so uh, it was just a little daughter board that hooked into the system. Um, and if the daughter board wasn't there, you know, uh, the code basically did nothing. Right. So um, I believe the only uh, unit, the prototype unit, is currently owned by Dale Luck. Or at least he's the guy who bought it for me. Because <laughs> I, ha- I had the original prototype for years. Oh, I see. Right. Right. And forgive my naivety. You, you said you, you came from Texas Instruments. Did, did you, did Dan Pliskin use any Texas Instruments chips in this daughter board of his? Boy, I cannot recall. Right. I honestly cannot recall. Fine. Fine. We have a speak and a Texas instrument speak and spell Easter egg that occasionally I like to drop in, but I may not <laughs> be able to uh, make that work. Um, was your job on baseball made easier, Ed, by the fact that the essentially the hardware and, and the game template, if you like, was was already in situ? Um, yeah, there were some modifications made. Um, yeah, but yeah. Um, 
it was, you know, it was fairly nice to have basically have the architecture open in front of me and I knew what it was and it wasn't being designed as we were designing the software, which was the case, you know, in some other games that I worked on uh, later. Mm. Um, but it was three months and, you know, I'm a baseball freak. Uh, I've been going to spring training for, I don't know, like 25, 30 years now and uh, for baseball. And um, I shared this with a, a couple of later Atari guys who you really should talk to, uh, Dave Ralston and uh, John Solwitz. Yeah, pe- people on our radar for sure, yeah. yeah. And and we still go to, to spring training with John and a number of other guys. Oh, really? Oh, okay. yeah, we, you know. Uh, this crew still kind of hangs together a lot. Um, you know, up until a few years ago, Ed Log had a Christmas party every year with everybody going there. We, you know, I have a, an annual golf tournament that I run, although uh, the last couple of years, the pandemic has kind of gotten in the way of yeah. that. And, you know, just uh, people would fly in. It, and it's just a big fun thing for everybody to get together. The golf is, my wife calls it a celebration of bad golf. But uh, <laughs> but the big thing is the party afterwards where everybody gets to schmooze. And, you know, it's a ton of fun. As it was then, as it is now. So that's, that's great, though. That really speaks to, to that camaraderie from the Atari days, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, still some of my best friends are people from the Atari days, uh, you know. Uh, Rich Adamant moved up here with me. Uh, we live yeah. up in the in the Sierra foothills now. And have you tried any of Rich Adams' wine? Um, not recently, not recently. But oh, so you have, so you have at some point. Uh, yeah, and actually, one year I, I I made up a whole bunch of of labels for bottles for him and oh really things like that. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's fun. You know, he's got the 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 vineyard out in front of his house and so uh, so so is is it really not so good or was he being self-deprecating when he uh when, when he told us this well you have to remember uh, we compare it to uh you know mainly to the california napa valley wines and it's kind of hard to compete with that Ed, your second game turned out to be the one that you are best remembered for which is of course battle zone and no interview is really complete without us asking you about it. But, um, Ed, are you actually sick to death of talking about it? Um, not really. You know, Battlezone holds a, a very special place in my heart. Um, it really was the, the first, you know, project that I got to uh, flex my muscles on. And, uh, you know, more than three months and more than 2K. I think I had a whopping 4K for that one. Whoa. Um, <laughs> they were spoiling you. They were spoiling me. Um, there was some ancillary programming I got to do. Uh, I did a pro, but by that time we were using better development, slightly better development tools, the infamous blue box. And uh, I was able to use it to program a uh, vector generator disassembler. So, I mean, part of the way you program the vector generator is the 6502 wrote instructions for the vector generator to display. And if, when things went haywire, you had to debug what was in the vector generator's instruction list that caused it to go haywire on the screen. And uh, so I wrote a tool that let us look at it uh, as not just hex values, but uh, actual mnemonics. Okay. So you've, you've gone very technical very quickly there. So I'm going to take <laughs> you back to before right. we get into 6502 and say, um, in, first of all, I'm delighted you're, you're, I still would have asked you about it, even if you said you were sick to death of talking about it. But it's nice to know you're not. Perhaps you could just take us back and say the idea for Battlezone was it was it from the uh, infamous book of ideas? Where did the initial concept come from? 
Yes, it was from the uh, book of idea, book of blessed ideas that came out of uh, an Atari brainstorming session. Now, I was not uh, at that brainstorming session. Okay, uh, I'd only been there like you know three four months, and they usually only uh, you know they may, to my knowledge that brainstorming session probably happened before I got there. I see. And um, what um and we often hear these brainstorming ideas are actually just like a sentence or two. So can you? <laughs> How much detail were you given for battles? Yeah, I think it was like maybe about three sentences. Okay. It was like, you know, right. we now have a vector generator. Um, tank was a huge success. Tank and right. you know, all its variations was a huge success. Let's try to do a tank game in first person. Did you get any choice? Or were you just told you were still a fairly new uh, member of staff were you just saying did they just say ed this is what you're doing now or did you get any say in it? uh i'm trying to remember um i i can't remember whether morgan hoff who was the project leader mm -hmm. came to me and uh and said would you like to program this uh this game i want to do this game or whether they gave me a book and you know i said i'd like to work on this one and and Morgan, I honestly don't remember exactly how that came okay. together. Well, it's, it certainly was an idea that had legs. Um, let's first start asking about the the vector choice, um, because, of course, games were being developed that were not at that time, that were not vector games, that were raster games. Um, was the decision based on the success of Asteroids, or was it more to do with the nature of this game, Battlezone? A little bit of both. Okay. Um, at the same time that Battlezone started, uh, another game, Red Baron, started ah, almost yeah. at the same time. So the idea was to leverage the you know vector generator technology, which we which was fairly new to us. Cinematronics had been doing vector games for a while, yeah. um, and uh, you know to see what we could do with it, especially from the first person point of view and. As you guys are probably aware, there was a math box developed uh, to we help have, with we the, have heard speak of with this, the three D yes. with the three D math and and you know I need to you know give props to the guys who worked on that um, the the uh, it was a you know leveraged twenty nine hundred one bit slice uh, hardware um, and and ganging them together and um, I can't remember who the hardware engineer was for the box itself but Mike Alba. Uh, actually programmed the bit slice processor to do the 3D operations. Um, and Jed Margolin oh, yes. worked with him, worked with him on, on the, uh, the math uh, part of that uh, to do. Uh, basically, it was doing four by four uh, matrices. Okay. Um, Is this, um, uh, you, you've been very kind crediting other people. Was the maths here very very um, challenging, and um, was it was it something that you could handle yourself, or did you need backup? I, I could have done it myself. It was more a matter of the time involved, um, you know, to get things done. Uh, I I was very fortunate in college. My independent study project was basically working on a vector display, uh, and and my instructor was uh, was none other than Jim Blinn, and I don't know if you know who he is. Oh no, tell us. Tell us. He's truly one of the grandfathers of uh, image synthesis and graphics, high-end graphics displays. Okay. Um, at, at the time, there were you know things like the Evan Sutherland and stuff, but non-real-time image synthesis. Uh, there's uh, you know there's a lot of things named after Jim Blinn. Uh, they used to say there are maybe a you know a dozen great uh, people in in the world of image synthesis. This was like in the early '80s, and Jim Blinn was six of them. Well. <laughs> 
And so I was nice. fortunate to take the independent study course with him teaching it as a grad student at that time. One of the things with Battlezone, particularly for the, you know, right at the early 80s, is, you know, it just looked great. The visuals were amazing. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about how you went about creating, well, let's say the illusion of 3D. Yeah, well, you have to remember, we could not uh, remove hidden lines at that time. So basically, we could draw a certain length, total length of vectors on the screen. You know, basically, that was our limiting factors, how many vectors we could draw um, you know, to, to be able to run at, a, let's say, a 30 hertz screen rate, refresh rate, which is what I think we were, we were targeting and what we ended up with. Um, you could only draw so many. Um, so the idea was everything, including the, the radar display and the score and the additional little tanks up there, the, the live uh, lives markings, and uh, as well as the 3D display, all had to be you know programmed into the vector generator. Um, and uh, you had limits on both how long it took to compute the lines to be drawn, as as well as the physical amount of lines you could draw. And those were your limiting factors to be able to draw one frame of a display. Was it, was it, hard, was it hard to work within such tight technical restrictions then, Ed? Uh, actually not. Uh, you, the, the technique you know, we used was pretty straightforward. Uh, the vector generator was a state machine, and you ended up programming a bunch of instructions for it dynamically. So you, you um, divided the buffer that you wrote the instructions into into two parts one for one frame, one for the next frame. And the first instruction at the top of the frame buffer, which the hardware automatically went to, was a jump instruction to one of the two buffers you basically designed it into. And you filled up one buffer while you were displaying the other buffer. And when you finished filling up the, uh, the other buffer, you just changed the top instruction to tell it, now you're working on the next buffer. So it was basically, you know, a, a multi-buffer architecture, uh, pretty straightforward. Okay. I'm, I'm nodding in the same way that when a mechanic opens the bonnet of my car and says, that's the big end, I just nod and go, okay, <laughs> I'll you there. So anyway, let's get back to something that I'm more confident uh, uh, asking about, which is uh, that guy, Owen Rubin, is that didn't he fiddle about with your code to the point that you said, if you want a volcano in this game, you bloody do it. He didn't fiddle with the code before doing that. Yeah, Owen and I shared a lab. And um, Owen was more of what we refer to as a vampire. He was worked later hours than I did. You know, I tended to come in before Owen. And I'd be working. And Owen would come in. And the, the background was, you know, just a set set of, you know, uh, vectors that had been pre-calculated and stored in ROM. And it included the volcano in there. And you know, there was a, once I got things up and you could move around and stuff and the volcano would appear on the screen and scroll back and forth as you turn. And Owen started asking me every day. He'd come in and go, is the volcano active yet? <laughs> and, and, you know, you know, I no, it's not active yet. I'm working on other things, you know. And, you know, for like weeks, he'd come in and do this. And finally he came in when I was like lost in like a, a horrible crash I couldn't debug. And I'm just working on this thing. And he asked, is the volcano active yet? And I said, if you... <laughs> more colorful language if you if you show. <laughs> yeah uh in, in very colorful language i said if you want the volcano active you write the code yourself and so you know he he knew better than to, to press me more than that when i was you know in a funk about uh about a bug 
So I come back in the next morning and there is a listing on my uh, chair and it said code for making the volcano active. So I just, you know, looked at it and I just said, okay. And I wrote it in, you know, at that time we hand wrote code and handed it to our computer operators who entered it into the computer and they came back with, uh, you know, uh, I got a new paper tape with his code in there, which amazingly worked the first time. I just had to position it correctly <laughs> so that it coincided. It was in the correct place uh, and scale it properly so that, uh, you know, we didn't have giant rocks or tiny rocks. Um, but uh, that's how the uh, Owen Rubin uh, made the volcano active in yeah. Does Does that say something about the working relationships you had at Atari that someone, you know, you were sharing an office and someone said, look, I'll... I, let me do that. Let me do that. Does it say something about the um, collaborative nature? Um, yeah, and that we trust each other to, you know, to uh, we all know how to write, uh, you know, code. At that time, it was 6502 assembler. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we also would go to each other for, you know, help uh, solving problems. People would come to me quite often. I guess if Mike Alba was busy. Someone you should really talk to is Mike Alba. Doctor Bizarro is, was his was our nickname because he would he he was kind of the master of the sixty five hundred two, and others of us were you know pretty good at it you know. But uh, if, if if you he would come up with these real bizarre solutions to really difficult problems. Well, that's a, our, our list of future guests is growing. We appreciate it. Now um, I wanted to ask one thing. One of the um, perhaps the byproducts of having a successful game like Battlezone is that rumours about the game uh, seem to start in arcades. And one of the rumours in Battlezone was that if you if you kept driving <laughs> towards the horizon, eventually you would get there and you'd sort of go into a cave and all that. Are you aware of this bizarre rumour from back then? Um, absolutely. We would get letters uh, sent in. Oh, right. um, they weren't sent directly to the engineering department, so... Um, whoever was getting the letters would mostly just like answer them quickly or file them away or whatever. And every now and then they get one and send it on to engineering, you know, and one was, can you get to the volcano? My buddy said he got to the volcano and everything, you know, we'd have to answer, you know, write an answer that <laughs> legal or whoever was handling this stuff would actually reply to the, to the sender. Um, that no, the volcano is not reachable. We all, we all had a buddy who got to yeah, the volcano yeah. Yeah. In, in one way or another, in whatever game, he got to the volcano. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I suppose it's like, yeah, well, they would deny that, wouldn't they? <laughs> classic. Um, anyway, um, I think rumours like that are as, you know, a sign of how your games entered popular culture. Um, so it's a good thing. Um, also, we wanted to ask about the, the radar system at the top of the screen which is a, an ingenious way. In fact, I don't think the game would really work without you being able to see where the enemies are because it's this pseudo 3D environment. I just wondered, was that something that you implemented from the start or something that you realised, whoa, we need to put this in or else players are going to say, where the hell are the enemies? I kind of think we implemented it fairly early on. Um, you know, there's no real way, there was no rear view mirror, um, you know, which was another thought. Um and uh, Steve Kelfi, in particular, hated my game because, <laughs> you know, he couldn't see the enemies behind you. You know, the radar. And, you know, he wanted a game. You know, we eventually said we should do a game for Steve Kelfi called Nothing Strikes Back. 
<laughs> so that he could just go out and kill things and not have to worry about anything blowing him up. Yeah, that was it. Oh, Steve. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Steve. <laughs> Pretty much right. Um, to be fair, you're, I mean, Battlezone is a, a difficult game, particularly because you added those bloody homing missiles, which yeah. is just mean, Ed. Why, why did you do that? Because players could play forever. Um, you know, as, as we did some testing, we, we knew that we needed something to amp up the level make it difficult to make it, you know, something that there was maybe a touch of luck in. Um, but uh, those and then the super tanks is the higher levels. The game had to get harder. And, it's, and it certainly does. We'd like to ask you a bit about the cabinet itself um, because it's pretty unusual. So I suppose the first thing is that the initial design with a periscope on the front Okay. Was again, was that something that you, you thought of from the start or was it a kind of eureka moment when you think thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool if you really felt like a tank commander? Um, that um, is a very interesting question. As I mentioned, Morgan Hoff was the project leader and he wanted the periscope. And the initial cabinet, basically, the only way you could see the monitor was through the periscope. So nobody else could watch you play. And I actually did not like the periscope. Oh. Not from a playing point of view. From a playing point of view, I thought it was fine. It was wonderful. It really immersed you into the game. But you have to remember back in those days, you'd go into an arcade and if it was a hot game, people would line up quarters, place them somewhere on the control panel or something to mark their place in line in the game so that they could play because they were watching, they could see, and that built up interest in the game, you know? And I worried that, you know, people walking by wouldn't get a chance to see what was happening, wouldn't understand. And and so I was I favored uh, the open face battle zones that came later, um, not from the player's perspective, because I agree that from the player's perspective, the periscope is wonderful. But it it sort of ruins it for everybody else. <laughs> that now that might lead on to you can clear up a mystery. Um, on some uh, upright battle zone cabinets, there's there's two holes either side. And uh, Tony did some excellent research here and spoke to Jed Margolin, who said, "Well, the idea was for those little holes is that a bracket could be put on, so you could put a monitor on the top of the game, so people could watch it. So you you could have the immersion for the player, but the uh, you know the arcade goers could also see what was going on. Is is that your memory of why there's holes on each side of the of the upright cabinet?" I, I believe I believe Jed is correct in that. Um, uh, I I think if uh, you can, I don't know if any of the open face battle zones eventually made it over to Britain or not. Uh, and I have an interesting story about Britain and Battle Zone as well. Oh well, we like we like a local link. Yeah, yes. well, yes. do tell us what's the um, battle, battle Zone was, as you rightfully point out. You know, and according to Toyer's Law, my first successful game. And um, right after Battlezone finished, Atari was coming out with the Atari 800 and the Atari 400. Actually, it had come out with it in the States, and I was using it, and it was a lot of fun. And I had written, you know, some demos for it. And I was friends with uh, some of the guys in sales and consumer sales, too. And they had decided to do a basically a big introduction in Europe with the Atari 400 and 800. And... When they were going to do the road trip, they asked me to go along as as the technical guy because I knew the the computers really really well, but not as well as the consumer guys. This this kind of pissed off a few of the consumer guys. Well, I had just finished Battlezone, and so I asked my Atari coin op supervisor, 
and my wife for permission to go. The two important people. And my and my my wife was pregnant at this time with our child, with our first child, our first and only child. Um, and uh, you know, it, so leaving while she's pregnant, that is asking quite a bit. But she was nice enough to grant me permission to go on the. Uh, I think it was a one week, uh, you know, barnstorming tour of basically uh, uh, London and Paris. Um, and we flew in the first night. We got there. I hadn't really gone out to the arcades to watch people play Battlezone, uh, you know, after it shipped at all. I was burnt out and, you know, I was playing with the Atari 800 a lot. Um, and so the first night we got there, we decided to go out for some drinks. And we're walking by this, I'm not sure whether it was a bar or an arcade, but I could see from the outside that there were a line of people lined up to play Battlezone. And that was my first time, you know, really seeing that and seeing it in, in, in Great Britain, in London. It was like one of the most heady experiences of my life that people were lined up to play something that I created. And I, I, it just, I, it's hard to describe. It was, it was a, a seminal moment for me in my career. Uh, and it happened in London. So there you go. Ed, I, I, I wanted to uh, talk to you about things that came after the Battle Zone Upright Cabinet, and there's a there's a few things to to ask you about. Um, one was the cocktail version of the game. Now we've seen prototype pictures of the cocktail version of Battle Zone, and it just looks really cute. Do you, do you have any ideas why the cocktail version was never released? I I can only assume the testing didn't do too well. I mean, the basic idea okay. was there were two sets of controls on opposite sides of the table, mm. and when one player lost a life. Uh, there was a hardware register I could hit that would flip the, the the orientation of the display. So now it was facing the other side of the table. It was pretty simple in terms of implementation. Um, I guess it just didn't do very well on test. Yeah, I guess that that sense of immersion wasn't really there. And and talking of immersion, if ever there was an eighties Atari arcade game that deserved to get the uh, cockpit or or sit down treatment, it was probably Battlezone. Do you have any ideas why that never came about? I think the thing is that the large pieces, the sit-down pieces, really have a limited place where you can sell them. They you know, they can't go into as many places. Uh, you're not going to get them into you know airports and and bowling alleys and right. and other places where arcade games could be sold or could be moved into, excuse me, by operators. Um, so and they're much more difficult for the operators to move around from location to location. So you you just can't sell as many of them. One thing I do need to say is that all three of us suck big time at Battlezone. Um, Speak for yourself. And we <laughs> and uh, I was hoping you might, if you could give us one tip for gameplay excellence on Battlezone, what would it be? Well, uh, I'll give you a couple of tips. Don't get distracted by the saucer. Um, okay. It's in there just, just to distract you. If it happens to line up and you can take a quick shot, fine. Mm -hmm. um, the way I handle the buzz bombs and, and the super tank, basically, um, well, I do it moving mostly in reverse. You you do have to worry about a situation where you'll back into one of the blocks. Um, right. And then it just takes quick reactions. And Yeah, I'm... There are people a lot better at it than I am. That's for sure. Yeah. Isn't that always the way? <laughs> and that's yeah, that's always the way. Uh, there's a, a I can relate a funny story about that. We were uh, cyberballed by John Solwitz and Dave Ralston and mm. a few other people 
just a fantastic game of American football. Um, and um, we used to play it all the time in the lab. And uh, there was a four-player version of it where it was, it was just awesome. And uh, I'd play with John and, and a couple, Doug Snyder, who was a hardware engineer on that, I believe, a uh, couple of other people. And you know, we got pretty good at it. So one night, John and I decided to go out to the to the arcades and challenge some players, and it was a big mistake. <laughs> right. <laughs> as good as we thought we were, they were better. It's just amazing. Uh, you just can't be that good at your own game. Yeah, it's, it's another common thing we we hear is um, uh, the number of Atari guys who are, are just constantly blown away with the skill of the general public on the games that they thought they were. Yeah, it's true. And Rich Adam, Rich Adam could never, ever complete... Um, Gravitar? Gravitar. Gravitar, Gravitar, you, without cheating, uh, as he told his last episode. Mm. And and that's a game that uh, that's a game that's hard for everybody. I mean, even the good guys out in the field, um, they had a hard time with that game. Um, Ed, um, I'm fully expecting you to break our speakers at this point, as I have read that the subject isn't something you generally enjoy talking about. But obviously, in the interest of cutting edge amateur journalism and our plucky collective <laughs> English grit, we're going to ask we're going to ask you about Bradley Trainer, if we may. Yeah, sure. It's, I mean, you know, clearly, um, Bradley Trainer is a uh, fascinating and and arguably unique part of Atari's coin op history. Uh, but, but it's always remained something of a folklore tale for uh, many years. I, d- I just wonder if you could tell us how how and when the project came about. It came about uh, shortly after Battlezone was complete. And um, I guess a couple of guys, or there was this group of retired army generals who were tasked or whatever with looking into leveraging arcade game technology to help train soldiers in some way. And they came to Atari, and of course they were interested in Battlezone. Um, and they talked to a guy named Rick Moncrief, who was a good friend. And um, he uh, convinced them that we could do a prototype of something they could use to train their soldiers. They, you know, they talked about a number of projects, but what they settled on was something to, to train the gunner position on the Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicle. Um, the M2 fighting vehicle. So then they, he and, and the brass at Atari came to me and said, there's going to be a worldwide TRADOC meeting and that's a division, or at least at that time, uh, a division of, you know, general, I guess the Pentagon or something that looked into training soldiers in various ways. Um, and the generals wanted to show, be able to show a prototype of a game that could be used of the Bradley trainer at this meeting. And that was Three months away. So I had three months to convert what we had in Battlezone into a training game, if you will, uh, for this uh, TRADOC meeting and get it done in time that they could take a, a prototype there. And basically, I lost three months of my life. It was it was pretty much wake up, uh, kiss my wife uh, goodbye, go to the office, work for anywhere from 16 to 18 hours, come Holy home, cow. Uh, get into bed. Uh, she was already sleeping uh, and, re- you know, rinse and repeat, weekends included. Uh, so, wow. Okay. Uh, so so did your discontent come from the workload or did you have sort of personal and moral concerns about Atari making games for the military? Um, definitely, I had those concerns. Um, certainly, 
my attitude was exacerbated by the hours I was working. Okay. Um, the, uh, I am a pacifist. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't believe in war. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, there's the side that says, don't you want to help our troops and, you know, make them safer? And, and I support our troops to the extent that they're put out in the field to, you know, to, to protect and serve for the United States of America. But in general, I, you know, I'm just against war. And I, I just had a problem doing this. I, I had further having worked at a company, namely TI, where um, Texas Instruments, where we were, you know, doing government contracts. I was aware, you know, of, of how the government gets involved in your hiring practices, you know, and, and various parts of your company. And we had just the best group of engineers and work environment. And I, you know, I had concerns about that getting messed up if if we now became a government contractor. Um, mm. So yeah, there were a number of reasons why I was not excited about working on, on the project. And so basically I struck a deal that says, I'll do this prototype and I'll get it done in the time you want. But on the condition that should you guys pursue this any further, I'm absolved of any involvement. Okay. Um, and, you know, uh, they said yes. You know, they, of course, they felt they had plenty of other engineers to choose from. And uh, that's how things went down. So it sounds like um, you were tapping the keys of your keyboard through gritted teeth with a certain amount of re resentment. But could you not have just said no? Or was that not really a choice given? I could have said it. it it would have it would have put me in in bad graces with uh, certain parts of the company if I had said no. Yeah, um, okay. I, and I could have said no, um, but for the sake of my career at Atari moving forward, um, I said yes uh, with with that big caveat. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, my next question is: Do you think it was a relatively easy job to execute? Which it which it doesn't sound like it was given the working hours, but but at least you had a sort of starting base of. The, the battle zone code to build on right yeah it was it was fairly straightforward i mean there was uh, you know going out and actually sitting in the fighting vehicle to get a feel for what it was like uh get the you know feel for the gunner's control and basically we came back and copied that gunner control uh we we made our own version of that um which was integral to a, a, it was the best thing that came out of that project going on because it was used in a number of games going forward or variation I should say variations of that control were used in a number of games going forward most notably Star Wars although you lost like the palm switches and uh, I guess a couple of other things but um, right yeah uh, tell us about your field visit so you actually went and to somewhere and 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 actually sat in a, in the in the M2. Yeah, FMC uh, was the corporation that manufactured uh, the fighting vehicles, and they were actually local. And so, you know, we had a field trip to go out there, and I got to climb in one and sit in the gunner's position, uh, use the controls. It was not live, <laughs> but, uh, you know, get a feeling for, you know, what it was like. Okay. And presumably at that point, you figured the twin stick design of Battlezone wasn't really going to fit the bill. Oh, no. Uh, we all knew that if, if we were training the gunners, we had to get as close to, you know, what they were whole feeling, you know, in their hands, the control they were using, we had to, to mimic that. Otherwise, And then also mimic what they were seeing, the kinds of, you know, uh, the magnifier that they had to uh, to zoom in on their targets and uh, the range finder that they used to determine the, the, the probable distance to the target and that kind of thing. We had to mimic those. So otherwise we can't train them. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, the actual cabinet itself uh, kind of mimics Battlezone in almost every way, albeit with slightly different artwork. I'm I'm aware of two cabinets that have survived to this day. Um, do you have any idea why why the game never made it beyond those two prototype cabinets? I guess Atari never came to a deal with uh, you know with the army or this other group that was the interface in between, and uh, a decision was made not to manufacture it. Maybe it, it didn't work well enough for the training. I really don't know. Okay, uh, I kind of washed my hands of it when I got done. <laughs> right. So so you wouldn't put any credence to any kind of conspiracy theory that actually it did make it out, but it just wasn't built within the factory of Atari? I can't, uh, I, I don't believe that that happened, but I have no information one way or the other. Mm. Um, this, is, this is like, you know, people coming to me about Polybius because somehow my name got attached to that. <laughs> and you're denying all, all responsibility, Ed? Uh, for Polybius? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, yeah, absolutely. One might argue you would say that anyway, but let's not go there. If I may interject a little bit of positioning, actually, now you've mentioned it, Ed, regarding Polybius, would you would would any one of you gentlemen, Ed, or even Tony, like to elaborate a little bit for those not in the know what Polybius is or purports to be? Uh, yeah, Polybius is this mythical, <laughs> if I may, uh, game that was supposedly uh, placed on test up in Seattle. Somewhere, somewhere in the Northwest. Yeah. And uh, there were claims that it was uh, causing people to have suicidal tendencies and mass depression and all kinds of other things. I don't know much about it. I don't know what it was supposed to have looked like. Somehow on the internet, my name got involved with it and people (laughs) keep to this day asking me about it. And um, I honestly had nothing, you know, I honestly nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. Right, even even if indeed it did exist, it's it, it's it's one of those Men in Black, uh, yeah, type absolutely things. was yeah yeah the like gentlemen in black suits were seen uh, in in the area. That yeah, kind of thing. I you know I can sit here and say I seriously doubt it ever existed, but I have I honestly have no idea. So it's, it's a fun urban myth. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, Tony, back to back to your back to your train of thought. Yeah, sure. I just just taking a step back a bit, Ed. Um, I wonder if there was more afoot with the whole Bradley trainer piece. In in that, I guess what I'm getting at is perhaps the army wanted more to do with Atari than Atari wanted to do with the army. Perhaps you know, we, Atari being the hot new tech company on the block. Um, you made reference earlier to governments, you know, having a hand in the private sector. In, in, in you know sort of manipulating things do you think there might be any anything behind that that sort of line of thought no i, I honestly think that you know atari was looking to make a profit in whatever okay. way it could um that was a time when joe robbins had come on, uh, on as president of the company and um i think he very much wanted to do this project um and you know we talked about it between you know i, I love joe robbins he was a great guy, but he we did not see eye to eye on that a particular issue. I mean, I guess you could understand why the suits were drawn to it because, you know, well, you know, if we can build 10,000 of these things, we don't actually have to sell them because the market's already there. They'll just get picked up and distributed throughout army bases across America. Easy, easy peasy, thank you very much. We'll just bank the money. Absolutely. I mean, Atari was not just an engineering firm, creative design firm. It was a manufacturing company. 
And to the extent that we could keep that manufacturing line full and pushing out product of any kind was a win for Atari. It was how it made money. Yeah. And so that, I'm sure, was a huge consideration in all of this. Interesting. You mentioned the uh, controller, Ed. Um, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, clearly that was one of the good things to come out of um, Bradley Trainer in your eyes, and it was used in future games. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I love that controller. <laughs> you know, mm. outside of the game, I, I love that controller so much that uh, – I after after that project I started two other projects um uh and I was involved primarily as the project leader but also doing some programming uh on two games one of them was called Warp Speed and used that controller yes. and uh yeah Warp Speed was an an attempt at doing a, a 3D space game uh and it was initially going to be a two player game and uh the other game that I started at that time was a game with Peter Lipson called Fire Beast. Um, I was pushing really hard for them to get a license from Ann McCaffrey because uh, it was uh, modeled after the Dragon Riders of Pern initially. That was the inspiration for it. Uh, and then Warp Speed eventually became Star Wars. Of course, indeed. Af- after I left Atari. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great example and a great showcase of um, Atari's innovation, especially when it came to the interface between the player and the game. Uh, you think about most other arcade manufacturers of the day, they would tend to go with, you know, a four-way joystick and two, and two fire buttons and make the game fit that, whereas it, it struck me that Atari would do whatever it took to make that ergonomic interface between the player and, and the game work. So anything from... Uh, Skydiver to Missile Command to Battlezone, uh, Quantum, you know, whatever it might have been. Yeah, uh, it was great. We had a great mechanical engineering group. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would come up with all kinds of things. In fact, here's a story about Battlezone that I I don't think gets talked uh, about much at all. We actually uh, did an attempt at at a stereo viewer for for Battlezone, where you know ah. we would present a different image to each eye, uh, so that you would get true stereo from it. Mm. Um, and we did it by using two uh, plastic rotating discs uh, that became shutters, and uh, you know we could tell when one one shutter was open for one eye, uh, and when it was open for the other. And the, it was just a big spinning thing. It was a you know electromechanical thing with sensors on it, and um, it made some people sick because we couldn't keep the frame rate high enough. Uh, Battlezone was pushing pushing the technology to, to do the frame rate we did. And then when you cut it in half to do stereo, things got wonky. So uh, it was around this time that you decided that you needed a change, presumably, um, and you left Atari in 1981 to set up Videa with some colleagues. I just wonder if you could tell us how that came about. Um. Yeah. We had a, um, I mean, if you know now, game designers these days make can make huge bucks if their games are good. Mm. I mean, really big time money. Back then, the bonus situation was, shall we say, a little less lucrative for the engineers. And uh, conversely, in the consumer group, the guys who were doing the big cartridge games, if the cartridge game sold a lot of stuff, those guys made a massive amount of money. And um, we were kind of feeling that this was not a good situation. And so we had seen the the guys at Activision left to form their own company. And uh, I can't remember, I think it was about the same time 
the guys who formed a magic left to form a magic out of the consumer group. And I had a number of good friends in the consumer group. And Howard Delman and I were talking and we got Roger Hector involved and we decided, you know, if they're not going to pay us the way, you know, they're, they're making a ton of money off of us. Mm-hmm. And we're not seeing much of it. So maybe we should do a coin-op equivalent of what they did. And that's that was really the idea behind Vidya. Okay. And and um, what did Videa set out to do from a from a sort of product perspective? We wanted to be an independent arcade design house, design and development house. Okay. We would develop hardware because we, you know, Howie, Howie was like one of the major hardware designers at Atari. Roger was an incredible artist and concept uh, guy. I was the software guy. Got it. And so presumably the idea was to develop games and then take them to market and sell them to Whoever. Sell them to Atari, sell them to Bally, sell them to Midway, or Midway was Bally, sell them to Gottlieb, uh, you know, and Stern, any of the manufacturers at that point, whoever was willing to pay us. And how much success did, did you have in, in that initial iteration of Vidaya? Not too much. Okay. We, we did a game uh, for... For Gottlieb, I believe it was. And, you know, it was a game we all decided on, and it turned out to just not be any fun. Looked great on paper, uh, and it just wasn't any fun. And uh, so we had, we did some other engineering tasks. And, uh, you know, about the time after, I guess it was after we we came out with the first game, Nolan contacted us. Yeah, yes. So this, yeah, kind of leads into my next question. So Nolan Bushnell, obviously, um, out of his five year hiatus after leaving Atari, uh, came along and took Videa over. I, did, did you see his involvement as a positive thing at the time? Well, there were a few things. <laughs> One, yeah, kind of took it over, but he also bought it from us. You know, okay. we were acquired. So um, unfortunately, it was not a lot of cash, but a, a lot of stock in Pizza Time Theater, which he owned at that time. Mm-hmm. And we were going to be a division of Become a division of. So, um, and you know, at that time, Pizza Time Theater was doing okay. We didn't see any problem with it. Um, turned out not to be worth much by the time we were actually uh, allowed to sell stock. So uh, that's another story in and of itself. But um, yeah, we saw it as a good thing. I mean, heck, Nolan Bushnell was one of the biggest names in the arcade business ever. So how could that be a bad thing? Yeah, indeed. I, I mean, it's interesting if you read some of the literature that, um, or rather some of the statements that Nolan was making at the time um, about Sente, which obviously um, was was the name given to the company. He does sort of position himself as the messiah and he's sort of here to save the industry with this great new business model. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Nolan is also an incredible salesman. I mean, mm. you know, he he started, he he worked on uh, in, in uh, amusement parks as a barker, you know, selling stuff. So he knows how to sell things. And um, he's just an idea engine. Right. Now, not every idea he comes up with is great, but he comes up with a lot of them and a lot of them are really, really good. Sure. We've um, told the story of uh, Sente a few times here on the podcast. I, I just wondered if you if you made it right to the end, or or did you did you see things were afoot and 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 departed earlier? No, well, I did not depart willingly. I was let go. Oh, okay. After five years, and there's a lot of things going on with why that happened. Um, it started primarily because I was going through a very messy divorce. Um, and so, you know, it was affecting me at work. Mm. Um, and concurrent with that, uh, video was having some problems and needed to do some reductions. And I was seen as, a uh, very expensive <laughs> uh, relative to other people in the company. And uh, that was just a lot of things. Uh, it wasn't handled particularly well, but that's what happened.
Ed, you returned to Atari in the mid-80s. Um, they do say never go back. Um, had things changed a lot when you returned to Atari Coin-Op? Yeah, there were some significant changes. Uh, for one, the new head of of the engineering department was now Dan Van Eldren. Oh, yes, yes, um, you know that name. Yes. And, and Rich Moore was, uh, I guess, in charge of the programmers at that time uh, in a position of management. Um, there were new faces there. John Solwitz, Dave Ralston, Mike Halley, a, a whole bunch of other people. Um, so, yeah, things had not remained static. And yet, you know, there was still uh, Dave Toyer and Ed Law. And, you know, Dave Sherman and a bunch of other guys still there. Uh, Dave Shepard. Yeah. Ed, had you changed? Oh, absolutely. How could I not? I mean, uh, you know, I'd gone uh, through a situation of, you know, running my own company, uh, meeting with both success and failure in that role. You know, Sente did some very interesting things. We had some games that I consider to be pretty good. And uh, yet we had, you know, the company as a, as a whole was not good <laughs> and did not, you know, uh, continue to go uh, on to success. So, yeah, you know, everything in life changes you. Of course. Let's pick up um, one of the games that you worked on when you came back to Atari, and that's Blasteroids, which was released in 1987. Um, I, I think I understand that you were the lead designer on the game, but we just wondered who suggested that it was perhaps time to revisit Asteroids. Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting thing. When when I came back, I had been noodling different ideas on my own. And I was thinking maybe something that could do kind of a rock, paper, scissors thing might be fun. And um, I, you know, Dan Van called me into his office and said, well, I know you're getting ready to start, you know, your first game after you came back. And I think we need to revisit Asteroids. Okay. And... I said, well, well, how can I, how can I, you know, work in my rock, paper, scissors idea into asteroids? And that's how we came up with the three ship idea and with, uh, you know, the uh, uh, two player cooperative game where you could join the ships uh, if they were the right types or, you know, just play independently. So that's, that's how the concept came. Yeah. It sounds like as soon as uh, it was suggested, you know, asteroids, you were straight away thinking of ways to develop it. But I, I wanted to, to ask about that. It, can it be a difficult balancing act when you're asked to update a game like asteroids, Atari's best selling coin op? Is it hard to try and do something new, but also keep what made the original so successful in the first place? It, in fact, it's not. Um, in fact, it, it's kind of a fun challenge. I mean, yeah, you're living up to, you're trying to, you know, live up to a legend, but we're, we're using entirely new technology. It wasn't a vector display. Um, we have color. My goodness, we have color. We can do lots with colors. And uh, we're able at this point, you know, to actually do some digitization uh, of of graphic images. So uh, I had some ideas of how we could, uh, you know, uh, come up with uh, a unique look yeah. to the game. I just, I, I mean, we know technology had, had moved on, but was there any any discussion about making it a vector game? No, there was no discussion about making it a vector game. But when I was implementing it, I did go to Ed and ask, you know, for the listing of the original oh. asteroid so I could, you know, uh, see how he did manage certain things in the game. Oh, I see. So that's interesting. So there's some of the, not literally the same code, but no. some of the kind of ideas of perhaps the inertia and things like that, that you that you can. Yeah, you know, I, I basically looked at how he did things, uh, uh, given the frame rate, what speeds he was moving things at. You know, just some generic stuff, you know, hopefully that that would uh, if if I copy that 
as as part of what I was doing, it might give the same kind of feel to the players. Yeah, yeah. There's some, there's lots. We really like Blasteroids, um, particularly when you play it on an original cabinet, so you've got the spinners to control. That, that's right. great. But um, there are a lot of interesting ideas in there. Power-ups, branching paths. Um, just wondered, did those sort of evolve as you developed the game, or was everything kind of planned out at the start? No, everything was not planned out at the start. We brought Mike Halley on oh, yeah. uh, as a game designer. Um, and so he was responsible for a lot of the ideas about branching paths and, you know, working your way through the game with the power, you know, the power ups we kind of had in there all along. But uh, he had a lot to do with uh, the, the flow of the game, if you will. Um, we particularly like, you, you alluded to it then, the kind of co-op element that you can play two players simultaneously, or you can even dock the ships um, together. Okay. Right. Do you think that idea of, of co-op, um, is that one of the reasons perhaps why, um, you know, Blasteroids is fondly remembered. I think it's fondly remembered as kind of a quirk. There weren't a lot of of cooperative games. I mean, one of my favorite games of all time, done by one of my favorite people of all time, was a game called Ripoff. Oh, Tim Skelly. Skelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's one of the few successful cooperative games out there. Um, or at least at that time. And and so I wanted to do a game where there could be some cooperation in um very much as a tip of my cap to Tim. Oh. Um and really, I mean, I miss the man dearly. Um, did you? Were you? Were you friends? I mean, obviously, you, did, you never worked at Atari, but did you? Um, did you socialize with Tim? Did you know him back then? Well, you know, we would show up at shows, and uh, we'd be invited to different panel. I think we were on a panel together once or twice. But I got to know Tim, you know, a little bit. And then when we, you know, when Innovative Leisure started up, I immediately called him and said. Can you come? Can you be part of this? Because I, I just hold, you know, have the utmost respect. Such a loss for all of us to lose him. Um, yeah, a lovely man by by all accounts, and incredibly creative. Yeah, definitely. Um, we were um, t- talking of, of co-op. We were going to ask you about some of the people that worked on the project. You mentioned Mike Halley there, and I think Peter Lipson was part of yes. it, and Mike Alba, Doctor Bizarro. So was it just like? The old days. Was it like putting the old gang back together? It, in many ways, it was. I mean, you know, there were new faces and there were old faces. But it uh, amazingly, Atari still had a, an awful lot of that early family feel back. Um, there were some other changes that came later on that I think hurt that a bit. But um, at that time, it was there was really that 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 feel uh, was still there. Something we tried to create. At Sente, and we tried to nourish at Sente as well. Hmm. Were you happy how the game turned out? Is it is it one that you look back from your back catalogue and think I did all right there? Um, I'm happy, and yet it could have been better. Um, Blasteroids was originally slated to go out after a game. I think it was called Terminator that uh, Norm Abelard and Greg Rivera were working on, but that game was having more problems. Um, than our game. And um, as I mentioned, we had a, a manufacturing line that was like a huge beast that had to be fed. And so yeah. when they slipped that project, they needed a game 
to put in its place to keep, you know, from having all these idle hands in manufacturing, sitting around with nothing to manufacture. So they asked me, can you push your schedule up? So, you know, originally we were supposed to have an additional two months before we released. Ah, so was there some things you would have liked to tweak then in retrospect? Oh, yeah, I would have liked to have a lot more time to tweak the gameplay. Just, you know, have people play it, work out the kinks, uh, uh, bump, you know, bump up the feel of things that they liked, tone down the stuff that they didn't. Uh, there's that tuning period that it never got a chance to have. Ed, you had a hand in and on a variety of games throughout your career at Atari in all its iterations. And we can't help but notice a common theme throughout, and w which is the, the employment of 3D from, you know, from the vector math box pseudo 3D wireframes of Battlezone to the flat shaded polygons of hard driving, stun runner and steel talons. Um, would you say that uh, Atari coin-up was leading the charge in this particular field? Or battle zone, if you like. <laughs> well, it was getting competitive at that time. Yeah. Um, and it was you know, pretty much pretty clear to everybody that 3D is where you know the high-end games were moving to. And we had to stay competitive. And so the filled polygon hardware technology, if you will, from hard driving, originally done for hard driving, yeah. uh, was done by Rick Moncrief's group. Uh, and a couple of his programmers there. And uh, when um, I finished with Blasteroids, I think it was after Blasteroids. Yeah, I think in the time, well, you, you'll know better than me, but I, I think so in the timeline. Yeah, I, you know, that hardware was available. And I said, I want to you know, do a game using that hardware. I mean, the, I'm, I've always been picky about, you know, how my games look, the, you know, the graphic look. And it at that time, hardware, hard driving was blowing people away. Yeah, with the way it looked. Yeah, and so I said, I want to do a game tough as like that. tough as nails, hard driving, tough as nails. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because they're they're trying to do real physics. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and that was their you know overriding, overarching uh, theme of the game was a commitment to uh, real physics. I, I have to say that real driving is a lot easier than hard driving. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, for all the reasons that. Uh, you know, uh, the, the feedback you get through the seat of your pants and through the steering wheel, yeah. through your ears, uh, that's harder to, to mimic. Yeah. I mean, hard, hard driving reads like a who's who of game game developers. And you were responsible for the music, right? Utilizing Rotberg synthesizer, if I'm not mistaken. Tell, tell us about that. Well, it wasn't the synthesizer itself directly. I actually wrote something new for them. Um, it's kind of odd because most of the other games were using a system that a special group, we had an audio group at that point that was mm. developing, you know, a common music API mm -hmm. to be used for, you know, a lot of the games going forward, but that was eschewed. And I can't exactly tell you why by Rick's group. And they asked me to, you know, since I had done a, a synthesizer for the 800 and, uh, I'm a bit of a musician and, okay. and, uh, you know, I, had an interest in this kind of stuff. They asked me to, to you know, I knew all the guys on the team. They asked me to uh, write the music uh, driver for it. Okay. Um, can you, can you speak to us a little more about that? The, the, you know, the process you went through and, and the tech you were using? Uh, I was using as lightweight a tech as I could find. They, 
these guys were pushing the limits of the, the all their processors to do what they were doing right. in hard driving. I mean, just to do the physics. Right. And so um, there were not a lot of cycles to spare for music. So the 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 key part of what I did, as I as best I can recollect, was to do a lightweight music player that would still give them plenty of capabilities but that be a burden on the processor. Right, sure. Yeah, you got it. And then moving on, in the same year, I think, um, being 1989, is the wonderful Stunrunner, which is uh, which is a great, great game and presented in such a unique cabinet too. And you're, you're credited with being, uh, you know, you're the designer of Stunrunner. So, you know, fr- from your perspective, what did being a designer at Atari actually mean rather than being the programmer? What, what, would, what was being the designer all about? Well, you made the decisions on gameplay, how the game would play, yeah. how the levels would be laid out. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, that was your 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 job. And initially that was supposed to be by Callie. But Mike and I, you know, we're friends and uh, we had just finished up with Blastroids, basically. And he was going to work with me on Stun Runner. And I guess he was having some issues. There were some issues why he ended up having to leave that role. Um, and then he worked with Dave Toyer on APP. Uh, of course. Uh, yeah. At that time. Um, and I took over the game design uh, role on Stunrunner. Right. Okay. Okay. I was I was initially going to posit that Stunrunner was very obviously a significant influence on on Nick Berkham and Keith Hopwood's Wipeout, which was one of the launch titles for PlayStation by Psygnosis. Yep. And I, I still think it really is. But I also, I, I, I put it to you that your game, being Stunrunner, of course, was perhaps a greater influence, if I may, on Shigeru Miyamoto's Super Mario Kart Um because, I mean, that's a few years later, and it really does share. I, it's something I've not thought about, and I will say that that is about the biggest compliment anybody could uh, could hand to me. I had the great good fortune to meet Miyamoto-san later on in life when I was working at 3DO. Um, and uh, at the time, I figured he had absolutely no idea who I was, uh, but... Um, uh, Let's just leave it at uh, uh, Miyamoto is a god. <laughs> so to to say that <laughs> that he drew an influence from me is flattering. Well, I I, I listen listen may, maybe that didn't happen, but it just it certainly occurred to me. And Stun Runner certainly came a few years before Super Mario Kart, and there's no I don't think there's any reason to think that he didn't see Stun Runner. It was certainly a big game. I mean, circularly. Nick Berkham has stated that uh, Super Mario Kart was an influence on Wipeout. So maybe it's just one of those cases where, you know, great minds think alike. Maybe that's that's what it is. It could be. And you know, I don't know. Um, it's something I never really gave any thought to. But certainly Mario Kart's the better of the games. <laughs> well, it's, you know, horses for courses. Fair enough. It, um, yeah, it's different. You know, and, and, and out of interest, and, and it would have been fairly old hat at the time, but Owen Rubin's Tunnel Hunt, which, you know, is, is the development of which is quite storied. You know, was, was that in your mind at all when you were developing Stun Runner, or was it just really kind of too old a game to really to be an influence? Well, working with Owen Rubin, there's no way it wouldn't be in my mind. Yeah, okay. Because um, okay. he would constantly remind me of that. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, at least after the fact, he would he would point that out. He oh, said, he did, did he? Did he actually? Oh, yeah. Did he? He, he said, you, fi- <laughs> you finally did the tunnel game I, did, I was trying to do. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Okay, yeah. that's lovely, actually. Um, okay. But um, the thing about Stunrunner, and I, I will give credit to Carol Cameron, who 
was, you know, whose initial concept was the one I used. Uh-huh. And that came out of another brainstorming session. Um, but uh, the overarching theme for that game was speed. Um, I, you know, I wanted to make you feel like you were driving at 900 miles an hour. Yeah. Literally 900 miles an hour. Yeah. That was what we were shooting for. And um, and so that that was the fallback for the game is that everything happened fast. Yeah, it did though. It's a one, it really is a wonderful game. It looks, it, it plays great. You know, as I say, the, you know, it's a unique cabinet. The, the cabinet looks great. It's lots and lots of fun. Um, I've just, I mean, sorry, briefly moving on to Steel Talons, which I've never actually played, but as, as I was doing my research for the, for this show, um, and I saw the YouTube playthrough, I think, you know, being a childhood fan of shows like Airwolf and Blue Thunder, I think I actually need to, um, cause it looks, it looks like a lot of fun. Can you talk to us a little about the development of Steel Talons and in particular, you know, working with a former guest of ours being Mr. Ed Log. Um, that was a treat. Right. Ed Log, um, still one of my very, very good friends. Yeah. Um, he was, you know, he was the man. He was the golden boy at Atari. Yeah. Uh, and I've led projects by, by this time, you know, I've led a number of projects and he's led a number of projects and at one point or another, we were working in the same lab together and stuff. And when he asked me to work with him on Steel Talons, I was like, heck yeah. <laughs> and But the way he goes about, you know, I mean, he he's very methodical about planning everything out, doesn't wing a whole lot of things like some of the other designers would. Um, uh, and it was it was pretty good. I was, uh, you know, we eat, divided up tasks. Ed was heavily into helicopter physics. Right. Okay. <laughs> He did so much research and yep. really, really did that side of, of the game. We had unique challenges um, that uh, I'll give you an example of the kind of challenges we had because uh, there were two link cabinets playing against each other and you were fighting uh, either the same things on, on the screen or, or each other or whatever. But for example, if, if you're both, you know, if I'm flying towards an object, and I'm about to hit it. And because there's, you know, you're communicating between the two, the two processors, on one side, the helicopter blows up the object before the other helicopter can hit it. But that information is not synced in time with the other side. He will blow up thinking it wasn't blown up by the other guy. Yeah. And so you've, you've, you're out of sync. So maintaining sync, uh, synchronization of, What's going on uh, was a unique challenge at that time. And uh, and so the game presented a lot of unique problems and was just a lot of fun to work on. And working with that, I mean, come on, that's the best. I think you were both both the golden boys of Atari by that time, to be honest. I mean, did your, did your uh, this is probably a bit of a reach, but did your earlier misgivings about, you know, the military connection to Battlezone, did that have any bearing on, 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 on you going with a, like a military helicopter theme for Steel Talons or, or as I say, is that a bit of a reach? No, that's a bit of a reach. This was just, a, this was purely a game. Sure. This was purely for fun. And, you know, uh, as it's not real life. So, Blowing up another tank, you know, we we didn't do human violence. You didn't see blood and guts and people blowing across the screen. Uh, not that I'm going to condemn that in a video game, uh, because you know there've been a lot of great games where a lot of that goes on, but um, it's just something we didn't do. Uh, and uh, you know, it, there was there were a lot of fun things, and we actually got to go fly one of the army's um, helicopter simulators. Uh, at, at Fort Ord, which is no longer around, 
Um, but we got to, you know, this was like a, a big, huge box that moved freely on six axes. And you had infinity optics in front of you for what you're doing. And so we got to to try to fly, you know, their Black Hawk helicopter simulator. Oh, right. Was I bet Ed was like a kid in a candy store. Oh, did he, did he tell you about that? It was. <laughs> no, he didn't. This is the first time I'm hearing about it. Was it but awesome. given, given your, yeah. Well, we, we had contacted uh, one of one of the helicopter pilots uh, out of out of Moffett Fields, which was very close to Atari, um, as an, an advisor and a consultant on that project. And he said, well, you guys need to feel what this is really like. So I'm going to try and get you clearance to get into Fort Ord and, you know, fly the simulator. And that was like, you know, kid, definitely kid in a candy shop day. That sounds like so fun. That, it was a fun thing. Excellent. So it was just a great project to work with Ed. And we were in the same lab with, I believe, Cyberball was going on in that lab at the same time as APB was going on in that lab. So there were a lot of things happening. Uh, in that lab, uh, it was getting a lot of traffic from players. So, did you, did you, did you? I mean, in the spirit of um, playing, playing each other's games, did you stroll over to Dave's um, lab and um, have a few goes on APB or the pro, the proto APB? Oh yeah, we we actually at that time Atari had a a walkabout Friday instituted where you know we'd have a Friday beer blast where they would bring in you know, uh, adult beverages and, and you know, treats and things. Yeah, and sure. we would go about playing each other's games, leave notes or whatever. But in addition to the, to that fact, because they were in the lab, the same lab, you know, you would just walk over in free time if they weren't working on the, the game and you'd fire it up and play it. At Robberg, thank you so much for for joining us on on the podcast. It's 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 been wonderful. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Ed, for sharing all those uh, stories. I I hope one day we uh, we might get over to California and share an adult beverage <laughs> or two. Yeah, maybe a rich Adam wine. Something there like you that. go. Thanks, Ed. Well, thanks. I, I and thank you. Uh, I was prepared for the one question I didn't get asked. Do do tell. Do tell. Go on. The hot tub question. <laughs> We, I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to get Paul not to ask about the hot tubs. I, I've resisted asking it. Well, come on, you've brought it up. You've brought it up, Ed. Spill the beans and anything else. No, only, only because, only because, only because Rich Adam said they're gonna ask. <laughs> well, because we have so, so come on, let's let's do it. Did you ever get in that hot tub? Yes. Oh, it's another great. Okay, now more. Now let's focus, okay? Let's focus, okay? So who else was in the tub with you? Now you're asking for something that happened like 35 years ago? Just make something up, Ed. It's fine. <laughs> it has to be said, Rich did back away from that question at exactly the same point. I think he admitted to putting his legs in the hot tub, but that was as far as he was prepared to share, which is a, which is, which is, which is a deep shame. Um, but having said that, Ed, um, thank you for uh, joining us. I I. What I enjoy out of these um, discussions we have with people are the small bits of minutiae that um, I've certainly uh, not been aware of, but also that I think some of our more seasoned listeners um, who think they know an awful lot about the Atari days, um, when we pick up little snippets, and I thought your... um, your uh, uh, reference to the the potential of Battlezone becoming uh, a stereo 3D visual, I thought was very insightful. Um, so thank you, Ed. It's It was a, a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your time. It was my pleasure, guys.
You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. Thank you.